Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today, it's part two of my conversation with Mark Smith. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gungara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands. Treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, Mark Smith is the award-winning author of the Winter Trilogy of novels set in a devastated future Australia. The Winter Trilogy highlights the resourcefulness and the heart of its young protagonists. We've got part two of my conversation about If Not Us. And look, I would start by saying, if you haven't heard part one, definitely go check it out. It's going to introduce you to Hess and Fenner, the two protagonists of If Not Us. And you're really going to start to see how Mark is able to highlight the incredible power and, I guess, hope of young Australians and and young people in general. I'm also just going to warn you that there are some spoilers in our conversation today. So if you haven't read If Not Us or you're worried about some plot points being revealed, maybe hold off on this one. Now, the beautiful coastal town of Shelbourne where If Not Us is set is the about to become the battleground over an incredibly important social and environmental issue Now, for Hess, it's uh, the only home he knows. He loves his surf, he works at the surf shop, and he loves that there is a new exchange student, but he's a pretty typical 17-year-old kid. Outside of town is the Hadron Mine and Power Station, and Hadron is central to the town. They employ so many people. They also fund local sports teams in the surf club. Hess hasn't really thought much about this, but his mum is introducing him to the huge impact that the Power Station has on the local area. And thanks to the inspiration of Fenner, Hess is getting involved. So join me for part two. Find out a little bit more about Mark Smith's If Not Us. One place that social organisation does happen, of course, is social media. And with the campaign underway, Hess is having a lot of doubt about the small role that he might possibly play. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to sort of lay out the whole narrative, but I, I will note that social media figures heavily into what eventually happens with Hess. It is a double-edged sword, though. Uh, we see a lot of negative behaviour on social media. How do you feel about that role? And of course, in your in your time in your activism, you have seen a huge change in the way that transmission of information occurs. Yeah, a massive change. It, it's changed the nature of campaigning completely. And not just the immediacy of it that I talked about before, but um, one of the things I was demonstrating through the book was, you know, here's a small state, here's a small scale campaign in a town which is trying to take down a huge multinational company. Mm. And so how do you do that? Well, you can it's not going to be done by cake stalls and and you know the door-to-door petitions and things like that. It's going to be done by, and the old, you know, the old adage is follow the money. So you follow the money and, you've, and social media is a great way of following the money because it's through social media that you get to the decision makers and the decision makers are the banks, um, the insurance companies, the superannuation funds and their shareholders. And that, this is where you can generate 
Um, you can generate so much pressure through social media now in a way that we weren't able to before because companies are very, um, are very cognizant and, and aware of how they are being portrayed in that social sphere. And a really good example of that is some of the larger banks in Australia now who are divesting from fossil fuels because they're being exposed. And how would we ever have found out about that 20, 30 years ago? We probably knew what was going on, but how do you expose it? Well, now social media gives you an opportunity to expose it and to expose it to the general public. So, uh, you know, so a large bank like NAB in Australia has just in the last couple of months been exposed for the huge investments that it still has in fossil fuels. And that's happened through social media. So it's changed the whole nature of campaigning. And it means that, that small groups can have a much larger influence than they were able to have before. So how would you respond then to um, throwaway terms like slacktivism or clicktivism, which have a, have a certain kind of prima facie resonance, but also feel like they're being weaponized against people who are trying to exert some small amount of power? Yeah, and I think, I think there's some validity in that because it is very easy to sit back behind your keyboard and just press, yeah, like, or, you know, I'm going to retweet that and feel as though you're doing something. And really you're not because a lot of, as we know, a lot of social media just operates in a vacuum mm. and we are just, uh, our feeds are, are curated to the point where we are really only in touch with and being responded to and responding to people of like mind, people with like-minded views. So we've got to be careful of that. And we've actually got to, but it also gives us the opportunity to, um, to follow and to the other side and to make sure that you're hearing the points of view that are coming from the other side. Mm. And that way um, you, it's, it's nice to think that having 100,000 100, people out on the streets will make a difference. But in the end, 100,000 people on the, out on the streets uh, you know, probably happens and then life moves on the next day. Whereas if you can maintain a, a campaign via social media or by or via um, emailing to your local member uh, or by better still going and meeting your local member, there's nothing that still beats that. There's nothing more important than doing that than going knocking on the door of your local member because it's too easy for them to fob you off if you don't. And if there are 30 of you that go knocking on the door of your local member, that's, that, that's where we can, we can have a larger impact. It depends a lot, of course, on what electorate you're in, how marginal your electorate is, um, and, and therefore how much you're likely to be listened to. But that's democracy. That's what we live in. That's what we've got to work with. So let's go to the voices that we're hearing. Now, Hess is challenged. He, he's made a decision to become involved, but he's challenged on his involvement. And he answers at one stage, he says, people hear this stuff from experts all the time. Maybe they just want to hear it from someone like them. Now, the way these stories are told counts. And Hess, he's an important voice in the Shelbourne campaign. But we also live in a time where we get a lot of, I'm going to say, really dangerous anti-science rhetoric and divisive voices. From someone looking from the outside, it's really hard to tell the, the two apart. How do we balance the messages that we hear? I mean, when you're engaging, when you're thinking of someone like Hess and his role, how do you, how do you strike that balance? 
Uh, I think it is. I think it's important that we make it clear to individuals. I mean, back to that individual level again. And people like Hess who do feel at the beginning disengaged that raising their voice not only has potential to have an impact but also has the potential to generate conflict. And you've got to be able to live with that conflict when it comes at you. There are a couple of more experienced campaigners who, when Hess is attacked, basically says to him, don't read them. Don't read the comments. Don't go to them because you're only going to be upset by them. And I think that... uh, Anytime that you, anytime you stick your head above the parapet, you are open to that kind of attack. And you, I think the most important thing is to anticipate it mm. and to be aware that your voice is as important and as provided you've done your research is as important as anybody else's. Um, and to just accept that it's pretty much the same in so many things. When, when I put a book out, I, I don't expect everybody to love my book. I can't. I have to accept criticism of it when it comes. I might write that off as not being valid criticism or I might kind of just delete that straight away, but it's out there. And I think that's it's part of the, part of the whole you know, milieu of, of standing up, of putting your head above the parapet. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of people don't, why they just sit back down and I don't want to expose myself to that kind of vitriol or to that kind of criticism. But I think... If you if you take if you have an expectation that it's going to be there, I think that's much better than being surprised by it when it comes. And where you have in the book, we have um, some very um, you know experienced campaigners who are leading this campaign. They understand that and they make it clear to Hess that hey, this is going to have consequences. You realise that, don't you? And I think that me writing this in the in the YA sphere. I think that's probably an important thing for kids to understand is that, is that yes, you are going to cop criticism for what you're doing here. And those kids that got out on the street in Geelong and all around the country, they cop criticism and they copped it, you know, from, from pretty high up, as high up as, you know, the federal government telling them, no, look, shut up and go back to school and behave yourself. So, but if, if you, like I said, if you expect that, you take it on board and you actually respond to it, um, without being dragged into the the slanging match, but you respond to it with with your research, with your understanding, with the facts. You have a much better chance of maintaining your, yourself in that space and not being whacked back down again. So, Mark, we have dealt with the incredible thematic thread of if not us that is the impact of climate change and the action that we are we are seeing. Hess's role in it, Fenner's role in it. There is an incredible social story going on in this book as well, and I don't want to give it short shrift, but there's a question I want to ask that is actually heavy with spoilers. It's partly why I've left it till the end, but I also think it's an incredibly important topic. So if for the podcast where people are listening to this, um, this is your warning of spoilers, we might cut this out of the two-air interview. But I want to I go to the character of Jago, you quickly set up a rivalry between Hess and Jago um, in the in the opening scenes where he he just um, he, he punches him in the face pretty much, isn't it? He he, cu- he drops in, cuts him off, punches him in the face. Jago's character is cruel and petty. We go. I go back to the naming, like the name Jago sounds cruel and petty. He flaunts his privilege 
And there's a, a moment where we never quite figure out exactly what was happening, but it seems pretty sure that he was trying to, well, he's, ki- he's pretty much kidnapped and trying to sexually assault Fenner. Like I said, heavy spoilers here. And then he dies. And at his funeral, we hear a much kinder portrait being painted. What I wanted to ask about was what you make of the way some men's behaviour is forgiven and can be forgiven by people because they're, quote, unquote, a good bloke. Yeah, it's such a, God, it's such a big question, Andrew. Mm. Um, and it's one of the things that we really, I really struggled with and which my editor worked with me a lot with the character of Jago because with a character like that, it's very easy to paint them as black and white. So you need to find the shades of grey in between. And it's almost as though um, as though Hess can see him the way he really is, but the rest of the town is kind of taken in by, you know, what I call his Ryan Gosling smile and his kind of his easygoing charm. So, And I think that, that in terms of the way males operate, I think there are a lot of people, a lot of, lot of men like that, uh, and... But there is, there's always something there which is, which I think is the good in that person. So um, you can't have them completely. As I said, shades of, of black or white. So uh, when, when you know, we've, we've said spoiler alert that, that Jago dies, and at his funeral, he's painted in a in a very different light, and that's the light that those other people in the town, principally the men, have seen him in. Um, naturally his parents are upset at, at what's happened and the, the really important part of that scene is Hess's response when the parents come to him. Now, originally um, when, I'm writing the, when I was writing the book, I had him turn away and walk away mm-hmm. because he didn't believe that that was, you know, the Jago he'd heard about in the eulogy was not the Jago that he knew. But he's a human being. And he's overcome by the grief of these of Jago's parents, and that's why he shakes Jago's father's hand, and that's why he hugs, gives a hug to his mum, because it's their grief that's important in that moment. Um, so I, I, I do think we see it all the time, where we see, and you see, um, you know, when a young man goes to court when he's been involved in a, a horrific hit and run or something like that. And they're always the character witnesses. Oh, no, he was a terrific club man at the footy mm. club and he was um, – and what they're trying to do is mitigate the character um, so, that, so that the way in which they're viewed by the judge or the jury um, is, is mitigated by the, perhaps the circumstances they've come from. Every person comes up in different circumstances and I know this from uh, – my son is a criminal lawyer and he's constantly – uh, being asked to defend um, people who, you know, if you read the front page of the Daily Telegraph or the Herald Sun, you'd think were, were fiends. Mm. And through his defence of them, obviously, has to go into their background and the, and all the things that have brought them to this point where they made this, you know, critically awful decision. Um, and so, again, it's that mitigation thing in the character. That's what we've got to try to understand in everybody that we bring into a novel like this. And it, it would have been easier to paint him as just a complete dick, you know, and, and he is in a lot of ways, Jago, but there are other sides to his character that need to be portrayed as well. What really struck me and what I, I thought was incredibly powerful, you mentioned 
at the beginning of your answer there that it almost seems like Hess can see something that no one else can see. And it strikes me that that is because Hess is being made a victim of Jago's power in a way that other men are not, but women perhaps are. And what was incredibly powerful there was the way you counted this by not one, but an ongoing conversation between Imogen and Hess, between Hess and his mum, about what that power means. Like you, you actually have Imogen say to Hess at one point about um, time with Fanny said, you didn't pressure her, did you? And that, that feels like such a difficult question to want to ask someone that you love. But my God, if more people ask that question, we'd live in a different society. Yeah, and look, I think this it comes to a core kind of uh, issue when you're writing for young adults, and that is what sort of responsibility you have writing in that sphere and whether you have any responsibility at all. And I think you walk a very fine line between in dealing with, for instance, we're dealing there with consent. Um, when I don't think you can, in 2021, I don't think you can talk about relationships, you can write about relationships between young people without mentioning consent. Mm. And But you've got to do that in a way that's not virtue signalling, which isn't this is the way I as an adult would like to see these young people behaving in real life. So the question that we're constantly asking ourselves as writers is, is this what would actually happen and should I portray that or should I portray what I would like to see happen in that circumstance? And it's a very fine line because as soon as your reader sort of feels as though they're being preached to, they're going to throw your book away and quite rightly. So they need to see the... They need to see how fine a line that is there too. And there are ways that you can do it more subtly and hopefully it's done in in the book in that way through the relationship between Imogen and her son and and particularly, you know, how she's, she's been, you can have fun with this stuff too because it's um, the fact that, that Imogen has been, talking to Hess about this since before he even understood what contraception and consent were, you know, and he makes a point of that, oh, mum, you've been telling me this stuff since before I even knew what they were, but now they're relevant and those conversations are important to have between the mother and the son. I'm so glad we went to this space and I'm so glad for everyone who has, you know, is still listening and is stuck around for the spoilers. I want to hit a high. I want to end on a high because another thing that I find extraordinary about your writing and that I think maybe not a lot of people would fully appreciate is the way you write surfing because this is something that is, I think, experientially very different to the way it, it visually presents, like if you're watching a surf movie or something, and there's a lot of stereotypes and the stereotypes exist, you know, kind of decade to decade about what surfers are. I know you're a surfer. How do you capture that feeling on the page? It's it's probably the most fraught thing to deal with in the writing process because when you think about it, if, and I've been surfing for 45 years or so, so I have all of this assumed knowledge, all this assumed understanding that I can't assume that my reader is going to have. So I've got to find a, a balance between being authentic to what it feels like to be in that space, but also welcoming to people who've never been in that space to understand it. So you've got to be very careful about, for instance, the jargon 
that you use. And I, I do recall that as we're going through all the edits with this book, you know, in every edit that came back from, from Jane Pearson, my editor, there was, can we just pull back the jargon a little bit? Can we just pull back the jargon a little bit? Um, and so there was a lot more of that, the terminology of surfing um, that I understand and that surfers would understand, but which someone living, you know, up in the Blue Mountains might, might necessarily understand. So uh, it is, I love writing about it because I understand what it feels like to be in that space. And that whole thing about writing what you know is, is drawing on your own experience. And that, you know, the final scene in that book, any surfer who's been surfing for a long time has been there. And we have felt that and we've felt the fear and we've felt the exhilaration that comes from the fear. So it's a, it's a very difficult thing to write, but it's also something that I love experimenting with and trying to draw the reader into that space to feel what I know I've felt so many times for myself. It's a great final scene. And I think, I think you've done something incredible there because this was a book that was never going to wrap up neatly because you can't you can't end climate change after 250 pages. Um, I love the way you ended. I was really actually thinking and feeling for your editor there because what a job. How did Jane have to approach it? Is she a surfer or was she more coming from the this is how it lands for a, a naive observer? <laughs> Yeah, more the latter. Mm. Um, she's she's got a she spends a lot of time on the coast, but not a surfer herself. Mm. So um, yeah, so I think it's important that you have that that person to giving you that other perspective for sure. Um, and in bringing, as you say, we're kind of. I was, it took a long time to work out how to complete this novel, how to finish this novel. And as you say, you can't tie everything off. It's in, it's impossible to do it. But I did want to had draw some sort of analogy between that experience out in the surf and his experience in what it took to stand up and to take a, you know, to take a role in the campaign and to expose himself. Um, and also though that he, in both those situations, he has support. It's only one other guy that's out in the water with him in this, in this final mm. scene, but that one other guy has an understanding of what it means to be out there. And there's a couple of conversations that they have that are pivotal to the understanding of the mm. whole thing. So it was, um, it was, it, it was the best finish I could I could do for this book. And I actually took me a long time. I I didn't have that final chapter. I knew I needed the final chapter. I just needed to work out how I was going to do it. And once I had it, I knew that yes, that that's probably the best way I can finish this story. I, and also, it was it was a terrific end. And also, I, I got that sense of like when you are surfing, it's never just about the wave that you are about to take off on or that you just took off on. There is always going to be another one. Exactly the position that Hess is in with this awakening, uh, you know, activist um, consciousness that he has. Yeah. Um, yeah, and most importantly, having done having you know again spoilers, um, but having got that surf that big wave, he paddles back out again. And that's, that's, what, it, that's what it takes. It takes, um, it takes perseverance. Uh, in the, and that's the, you know, the analogy with the whole climate thing and with standing up in a small town. It takes perseverance. You'll get knocked down. You've got to get back up again. Uh, and that's hopefully what was drawn out by that final scene as well. Yeah, it's a terrific final scene. It's, I think you made a joke. Was it, um, 
It wasn't Big Wednesday, you joked. It was Morning of the Earth at, at the yeah. early part of the oh, book. Yeah. It was a real... It, but, I mean, either of those either of those films. It was a real sort of evocative of that. It just... Um, yeah, yeah, just needed some guitars in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, that was, I mean, a lot of that was to do with uh, building that character of Theo, who's a really important character in the book, who owns the surf shop and really has become a surrogate father mm. for Hess. Um, and he was a, a great character to write as well in his kind of... that. Those com- I love writing those conversations between men and boys, mm. you know, where there's a kind of an, a real... There's an element of taking the piss, but it's underlined by this real genuine affection for each other and concern for each other. I was about to wrap up the interview, but I need to ask you another question if if you'll (laughs) indulge me, because yes, conversations between men and boys are so incredibly important. We don't have enough good ones. I mean, as a proportion of the way um, we have conversations between characters. I mean, even um, if I think about, you know, sort of in, in feminist studies, they have the Bechdel test, which is a way that they look at the quality of conversations between women. Yeah. Um, coming to that, in, in If Not Us, Hess's dad, has he died when Hess was seven or ten? When he was ten. When yeah. he was ten. And it seems like there isn't a father figure, and yet we have Hess having this extraordinary array of father figures and in this ability for him to look to people. I mean, Bear is a relatively new character in his life, but he is able to look to this man and see positives. And even Steve Daly at the very end, a a person that he knows by sight who, I mean, that scene almost felt like a father and son or a, or Hess as an older person and Hess as a younger person. And I'm, I never, I never do this, but I'm going to do this. It felt almost a little bit like you at different stages in your life talking to yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, look, just to talk about the, the boys and men conversation, um, I, I, and this is, this is a boy who's lost his father. He is searching for role models. Um, and I found that the last probably 15 years of my working life, I worked solely with 15-year-old boys in in a residential campus. So um, I learned a lot through that experience about not just the way they communicate with each other but the way they communicate with older males. And there is a lot of – there are a lot of things that I mirror in the relationship between Hess and Theo uh, in that. And that's the things of – some of it it's just – it's not. It's not even audible. It's a flick of the chin. It's a mm. that that you know. It's just saying, "I recognise you. I see you. I recognise you." And sometimes that's all a young man will need. It's just that recognition. Um, and there is the there's the base humour, the baseline humour that sort of underlies those relationships as well, which is automatically there. I mean, he's known Theo for a long time, but it's almost automatically there with Bear when he meets Bear. So there is some sort of uh, pre-agreed means of communication that I think exists between younger and older males that um, that's, that can be you know can be misused as well, um, but which I think I, I'm very I'm very in the character of Hess I'm very cognizant of not falling for you know I, I'm sick of reading the bad boy trope. You know, the, the young males are always the bad kids. and he's, But he's just this kid. This kid's lost. He's lost because he hasn't got his father. He's doing everything he can to try and cope. 
and to look as though things are normal, but there's this massive hole in his life that he's constantly looking for answers for. And the important thing that he gets from those older males, in particular from Theo, is, is you know, there may not be an answer. Mm. You may not find the answer to this. And sometimes, as he says in the, in the book, sometimes shit just happens and it doesn't necessarily happen for a reason and we've got to learn how to deal with that. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of straight up, you know, str- very straight conversation that I think males do have with each other. Yeah. Mark, the... Uh- a few unexpected turns in the conversation. Thank you so much for coming along with me. I'm speaking with Mark Smith. His new novel is If Not Us. In- inevitably, when I am talking to a YA author, a young adult author about a YA book, I am going to remind everyone else that this is a cracker. Um, everyone needs to read If Not Us. Mark, thanks so much. Thanks very much for having me once again, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Mark Smith. Mark's new novel is If Not Us. It's out now from text. If you're intrigued by If Not Us, if you want to find out a little bit more about Mark, Mark has appeared on the show previously. If you go back through the catalogue, you will find other conversations with Mark about his winter trilogy of novels. They're, They're absolutely fantastic and I cannot recommend them enough. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. Uh, you're, we're on Twitter, Instagram. We're on Facebook at Final Draft Two SER. I'm not the most amazing at posting, but you know what? If you wanted to drop me a line, talk about what you're reading, I would definitely love to hear from you. I, I, I would definitely reply, just because I'm awful at posting. <laughs> Subscribe in the podcast app. It means you will get every episode of the Great Conversations podcast every week, and our bonus book club midweek. I am Andrew Popel. There will be more great conversations next week from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.